Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swaminathan. And I'm Jenny Beck-Esme. Jenny, what are we going to get into today? I thought we could dive back into toxicology and talk about salicylate toxicity or salicylism, which I got to say is one of my favorite words in medicine, salicylism. It's a good word and it's a great topic. And of course, this is not just about toxicology. It's about resuscitation. It's about critical care. And of course, it is core content emergency medicine. Salicylate toxicity is characterized by a constellation of symptoms caused by acute or chronic overdose of salicylate-containing compounds. The most common compound we're talking about is aspirin, but there's also another group of salicylates, including methyl salicylate or oil of wintergreen and bismuth subsalicylate, which is Pepto-Bismol. The pathophysiology of salicylate toxicity isn't too complicated, and we'll keep things simple for the podcast. Salicylic acid uncouples oxidative phosphorylation, leading to an accumulation of lactic acid and pyruvic acid. This results in an anion gap metabolic acidosis. Additionally, salicylic acid directly stimulates the respiratory drive, leading to a metabolic alkalosis. Quick edit here. We meant to say that the central stimulation causes a respiratory alkalosis, not a metabolic alkalosis. Talking about oxidative phosphorylation and lactic acid and pyruvic acid is going to give some people some flashbacks to biochem for sure. I am definitely going to see Krebs cycles dancing in my dreams later today, which is not a good thing. Yeah, that's not a good thing. I'm not, I'm not saying that we should do that, but I think that physiology is important in order to understand what we're going to do with the disease when we see it. As the pH drops, more salicylic acid can cross the blood-brain barrier, leading to worsening neurotoxicity. The final piece is that salicylate toxicity can cause something called neuroglycopenia. Even at normal serum glucose levels, the CNS glucose level can be depressed. Patients with salicylate toxicity will present with tachypnea and hyperpnea due to central respiratory drive stimulation. An elevated temperature may be seen with uncoupling of oxidative phosphorylation, but is usually a perimortem event. They may complain of tinnitus, and they'll often have nausea and vomiting. The CNS effects will lead to confusion, altered mental status, seizures, and possibly coma. One important thing to look for is the presence of tachypnea and shortness of breath with clear lungs. The differential for that is pretty short, so anytime you see that combination, think about salicylate toxicity, and in a larger sense, think about metabolic acidosis with respiratory alkalosis. The toxicity can be either acute or chronic, and these patients will present a bit differently. Now, in the acute overdose, you'll often get a history of the patient having taken an intentional ingestion. Often these patients are younger, without medical problems, and co-ingestions of other drugs is going to be common in those patients. Chronic toxicity typically occurs in older patients when they're on aspirin, but they've chronically been taking more than they should be. These toxicities can go undiagnosed because there's no clear history and these patients have a significant morbidity mortality due to both the delay in diagnosis as well as their other underlying conditions. Jenny, let's say you see a patient with tachypnea and while you don't have a clear history, you're worried about salicylates. You get a VBG and it shows a pH of 735, a bicarb of 5, and a low CO2. So you're thinking, aha, I got this, anion got metabolic acidosis with a respiratory alkalosis. What other diagnoses aside from salicylate ingestion should you be thinking about? For an anion gap metabolic acidosis, I would think about my pulse mnemonic. That's with a K. So ketoacidosis, uremia, lactic acidosis, toxins like toxic alcohols or metformin, and of course, salicylate. 
There are other mnemonic devices that people use, mud piles and gold mark, so you can pick whatever you like. You'll often see a fairly normal pH in these patients because they've got two primary issues going on, but the bicarb will be depressed. That's the key. Other labs we want to get are a salicylate level, which can help us in determining treatment, and acetaminophen level because it's a possible co-ingestant, and then we're going to move on to management. Once you've got this diagnosis, start with the basics, IV, O2 if needed, and a cardiac monitor. Because of the tachypnea and altered mental status, there's a lot of temptation to take over these patients' airway, but we have to exercise some restraint and be really cautious when doing that. These patients have a high respiratory rate and high minute volumes to ensure that their pH stays in a reasonable range. Inducing apnea during RSI can lead to CO2 retention and a precipitous drop in the pH. Possibly more important is that it's very difficult to maintain the patient's respiratory physiology pre-tube and then also post-tube with the vent. You've got to keep them with a high respiratory rate to keep them blowing off that CO2. If you intubate these folks and don't mimic their pre-intubation rate and minute volume, you run the risk of that peri- or post-intubation cardiac arrest. This doesn't just apply to salicylates, but it's really any patient with a significant anion gap metabolic acidosis who has either a primary respiratory alkalosis or a compensatory one. Short of the long here is to try to avoid intubation. If you absolutely must intubate, consider an awake intubation where there's no apneic time or a ketamine-only intubation and make sure you mimic their pre-intubation respiratory physiology with the vent. You'll often see a recommendation for peri-intubation bicarbonate to help balance the pH. And while we've got no real evidence that this help, that this is going to be helpful, it does seem to be a reasonable thing to do. The standard recommendation is to give three amps, which would be 150 milliequivalents bicarb and then run a drip. There's a fantastic paper by John Sackles on this topic, and we'll drop a link to that in the show notes. All right. So ABCs, avoid intubation if possible. Let's get to specific management. If you have a suspicion of salicylate toxicity, and Jenny, this is one thing that we didn't make clear before, you're going to have to act before you get that salicylate level back. Most of the time, that's going to be delayed, and you can't really wait for that to start treatment. If you have this acid-base kind of conundrum in front of you, we want to start treatment, and that's going to be with alkalinization of the serum and urine with sodium bicarbonate. That's the big thing we need to be starting. This helps to keep the salicylic acid out of the CNS by increasing the pH and enhances elimination in the urine. Standard treatment is, again, to give 150 milliequivalents of bicarb or three standard ampules as a bolus. The tox answer is to give one to two milliequivalents per kilo, but most of the time that ends up being in that 150 milliequivalents range. And then we want to follow that with a bicarb infusion at one and a half to two times maintenance. The drip is created, again, by putting three ampules of standard sodium bicarbonate, 150 milliequivalents, into a liter of D5W. Your goal is to have a serum pH around 755 and a urine pH around 8. Additionally, we have to be aggressive about treating neuroglycopenia. If the patient is altered, just consider giving dextrose regardless of the serum glucose, because as we know, the CNS can have a lower glucose level than the blood. So if you're suspecting it, just give the glucose. Hypokalemia is another real danger. If the patient is hypokalemic, it'll be hard to alkalinize the urine due to the resorption of potassium in exchange for hydrogen ions. So replete potassium to around 5.5 milliequivalents. Finally, we have to consider hemodialysis. HD can remove aspirin and is particularly useful if you can't get the patient alkalinized. There's no clear cutoff for HD based on a salicylate concentration, although many will quote the 90 to 100 milligram per deciliter range. 
What you're really looking for is a failure to improve with your therapy. Logistically, it's wise to get your nephrologist on board early, along with your toxicologist, obviously, because that can help to get HD set up and running. Jenny, before we go, how about some take-home points? Yeah, I've got a few for you. So first, keep salicylate toxicity on your differential diagnosis when you see patients with tachypnea, hyperpnea, altered mental status, and clear lungs, or when you see a patient with an anion gap metabolic acidosis with respiratory alkalosis. Second, treat salicylate toxicity by alkalinizing the blood and urine to increase excretion. Third, avoid intubation until absolutely necessary. If you do have to intubate, consider an awake intubation to minimize your apneic time and make sure after the intubation that you get your vent settings to match the patient's necessary high minute ventilation. Next, think about chronic salicylate toxicity in unexplained altered mental status, tachypnea, or metabolic acidosis in an elderly patient. And then last, when you find a patient with a salicylate toxicity, just consider getting the nephrologist on board early. HD is needed if the patient isn't improving with your alkalinization therapy. And since it takes a while to get that set up, it just doesn't hurt to make them aware of the patient early. And of course, as we always say with these toxic issues, get your local toxicologist on board, get them on the phone. They can help guide management. They've seen more of these cases or at least read and heard about more of these cases than we have. And so getting them on board early can help to direct management, can help with ongoing management, especially for the inpatient team as well. That's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.